Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sex Ed Podcast. This is Kaylee. And this is Jen. This week, we are talking to Dossie Easton. Dossie motherfucking Easton, y'all. Yes. Dossie Easton is a really notable member of the polyamory and kink uh, and I guess sex educator community. She has written the new topping book, the new bottoming book, Ethical Slut, When Someone You Love is Kinky. There's a bunch of books. (laughs) She's just... She's given countless talks and seminars around lots of stuff to do with sexuality. She's also a therapist. Like she's, Mm -hmm. she has been in sex positive spaces since before many of us were born, since before some of our parents were born even. So (laughs) I know for me, like the ethical slut was life changing. And I think that's true for Jen. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is incredible, packed with amazing information that hopefully you find really insightful. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Jen and I are beyond excited. I don't think I can even describe how excited we are to have you here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are huge fans. We've actually already talked about you on our podcast, I think multiple times with different guests. So (laughs) this is super cool. So to get started, can you share your pronouns and your sexuality and maybe a little bit about yourself? Okay. Yeah, I'm Dossie Easton. I identify as queer, which doesn't really tell you a lot, but mostly in, oh, I've lived communally with gay men who raised my daughter with me and like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's like I am all kinds of queer and lived in women's community and kind of in um, pansexuality land. Mm-hmm. As far as that's concerned, I, I say I occasionally engage with the odd men. If they're engaging with me, they're pretty odd. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, so my, my gender identity and my sexual identity have also changed a lot over the years. I do use she, she, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, since 1969, when I first became a really a feminist due to a very incredibly transformative acid trip, to tell you the truth, where I believe I might have taken a thousand micrograms. (laughs) But anyway, it was the acid trip to end all acid trips. And yeah, <laughs> I am profoundly grateful for it. I'm just grateful. Wow. It really changed my life. It was when I realized that sexuality was my path. And I, I realized that in feminism, my goal was really what I called at the time androgyny. Mm-hmm. Or you, we would call it non-binary now, I guess. But I, I think it means something different. I, I looked at myself and I saw all the ways in which I had not done things that were native to me because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. And how I had learned to, for instance, not show up as being too intelligent because, God forbid, there might be some man somewhere who thought you were more intelligent than him and he (laughs) might just explode. But uh, (laughs) uh, you never know. But all those kinds of things to say, you know, I wanted to reclaim myself from gender stereotyping. And that meant learning a whole lot of things. And I wound up with my role models being a bunch of what we at the time called drag queens in North Beach. In San Francisco. Yes. (laughs) And I have been looking for images of what would be a powerful woman, and nobody taught these women to be not to be powerful when they were little boys, you see. So it worked really well. And I had a closet full of of thrift store evening gowns, and (laughs) I learned to fix my car. Wow. (laughs) Wow. That is quite the journey. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, so both of those things, learning big tools, which were forbidden to women at the time, Mm -hmm. and at the same time, being flamboyant, being visible. 
right. not wearing what was respectable, wearing what was fun to wear or what felt good or what fit my fantasy, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and being very, very out of the closet about being a sexual person. Mm-hmm. And that was really important to me. I had decided at the time that I would never be monogamous again. So I guess that was me realizing that I wasn't going to settle down and and get married and that was not going to be my path. And it mm-hmm. hasn't been. I've been partnered over the years. I mean, that was 50 years ago. More than that. That was in 1969. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started working in the sex and sexuality field? Well, when I was 17, I was saying, what, what is this business about dirty words? How can a word be dirty? Mm-hmm. The word cunt, for instance, was quaint in Chaucer. Mm-hmm. With a line in, in the, the Miller's tale was, and privily he caught her by the quaint. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. Chaucer, okay? Respectable, yeah. 1393, you know, <laughs> from Canterbury Tales. And so that language wasn't forbidden at some time. You, you found it literature mm-hmm. everywhere yeah. and early novels in the 17 late 1700s were uh, largely written about courtesans fanny hill molly flanders and again mm-hmm. there's lots of sex and people didn't think a thing of it they thought it was just nifty you know yeah <laughs> I, I was finding all kinds of examples to say that our rather puritanical approach and especially the kind of meta rule that it wasn't okay to talk about sex mm-hmm. even now knowing that you're going to broadcast this right I have to be pay attention to what language I use and that kind of thing because mm. it is so forbidden to talk about sex in any way explicit enough to, for heaven's sakes, tell somebody what you like and what you don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what you're hoping will be included in the evening's entertainment or something like that <laughs> and how your orgasms work and all those other useful bits of information. And we consider talking about those things to be almost worse than doing them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Maybe worse, yeah. maybe actually worse than doing them. And so that deprivation of language, the fact that we have been robbed of language about sexuality, is really important. Mm-hmm. And so I started working from there on in to talk about sex all the time, much to the exhaustion of some of my friends, and, uh, <laughs> and eventually wound up with San Francisco Sex Information, which is still in existence and a marvelous mm-hmm. organization, and got on their training staff and did a radio show. I just coincidentally met some of the people who were working at the radio station, and they said, oh, you were they listened to me talking about sex all the time like I did and said, we ought to put you on the radio. You need a radio show. So I had a radio show for three years. I had the privilege of meeting and interviewing a lot of very pioneering kind of people in various Mm. areas of sexuality and and opening awareness of a lot of good things. The 70s sounds like it was the time to be talking about and doing sex and all sorts of quote unquote alternative relationships. I don't I don't really know what happened since then. I guess the eighties, the conservative eighties came in and we lost it all. AIDS happened. Yeah. Mm. AIDS. Really a lot of our fearless leaders were were gay men yeah. of one sort or another, including my drag queen friends. I lived communally with gay men from nineteen seventy four to nineteen eighty nine. So I was right mm-hmm. in the middle of the plague when it was happening and we were yeah. busy taking care of people who were dying. And trying to figure out how to get medical care to people who were appallingly sick. It was, it was a whole right. other time. We didn't lose the community. It was a close call. And I was really mm-hmm. proud that the community managed to survive. But it was a very challenging time. Mm-hmm. And so the kind of huge freedom that we were celebrating in the 70s. For a lot of people, the, the fear, I mean, I was teaching Safer Sex and like started in 1982. 
doing workshops in sacred sacred mm-hmm. sex. And it it uh, and we managed to. I mean, COVID is not like AIDS. It's mm. easy to have good sex and not transmit AIDS. It's dead easy if you are good at talking about what it is that you wanted to and mm-hmm. scheming cleverly to say, can we do this with a tool that we can wash clean, for instance, you know? <laughs> right. How do we do this? And uh, can we do this without exchanging body fluids or genital body fluids? Or what, do we, what can we do here? And you can always, there's always plenty. There's always plenty to do. So the sexual communities that we had going, they survived, but mm-hmm. they slowed down some. It wasn't quite as free. Mm-hmm. Auntie Di closed the baths. Yeah. So that culture kind of closed down, but we did keep the community. We kept the buildings people owned that provided apartments for our folks to rent so they didn't have to go pretend to be somebody else to rent a place to live and provided the restaurants and stuff that provided jobs for our people. It was very scary. A lot of us didn't have wills at the time who were dying. And so we developed a lot of social services to help people out. Yeah. And that was another kind of blessing because it actually established our community much more strongly, I think. Yeah. Despite the horror of losing almost an entire generation of gay men. Yeah. It's so incredible to hear about your journey and how you've built everything in your career up from basically that one moment in 1969. Could you tell us a little bit more about your life pre-1969, before you became a feminist and made your decision to be non-monogamous for life? Like, what was your sex education like? I'm assuming it's going to be very opposite from (laughs) where you are now. (laughs) It was trial and error. And there were lots of trials and there were lots of errors, you know. (laughs) It was really hard to find things out. Unlike anything else, if you want to learn French, you figure out you should go learn it and you should study it. And you know you're going to speak kind of awkwardly for a while. You know you're not going to come forth speaking perfect French and and Mm -hmm. so on. And anything else you want to learn, you have a space for learning, for being a learner. Yeah. Sex, that can be not available. Like you're supposed to do something and it's supposed to come naturally and it's supposed to work beautifully the first time you try. (laughs) I think the first thing that was a huge difference then is we didn't give ourselves space to learn. Mm -hmm. And whether that was even just the plain physical things that we were going to share in sex, how do you do some new activity that you haven't tried before? How do you learn to do oral sex if you've never done it before? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the fact that people's cheeks get sore when they suck cocks? You know, unless you have a particularly wide jaw. I thought I was the only person in the world whose cheek got sore. <laughs> <laughs> there was no communication. Yeah. And that's what I use it my as my example of, of how silly it is to not communicate about these things. Because right. mm-hmm. trying to find a polite way to stop and do something else so that we can not have agony in our trigeminal nerves and <laughs> Yes. And we're trying to find a polite way to get out of this instead of simply saying, okay, I need to rest my jaw for a while. We need to do something else. Right. Simple communication. And so there was a lot of, a lot of hardship. And then I was 18 when I dropped out of Bryn Mawr and moved to New York City. And I was very interested in having lots of sex with lots of different people. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'd been there about six weeks when someone, a friend of mine took me aside and said, you know, I Dossie, you're getting kind of a reputation. Reputation? Why do you think I left Massachusetts? (laughs) What do you mean reputation? And I'm sitting here with this kind of simple 18-year-old enthusiasm because I like sex, right? I think it's nifty. Yeah, I really enjoy it. (laughs) And uh, I enjoy meeting all these people and connecting. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get any better if you play hard to get, as far as I could see, Mm -hmm. you know? uh, (laughs) So the whole thing was 
you've got to be kidding. And so I had to figure out a way to empower myself and not let people dismiss me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way they do even now, women that they view as in some way hypersexual or not okay with sex. Mm-hmm. And I found ways. Oh, I found ways. I mean, I, I, some of them were pretty sleazy. I wouldn't do them now. I would like um, <laughs> meet somebody in a coffee shop or something and go home with them. And then in the morning, cheerily get up and say, thank you. That was lovely. And uh, with or without breakfast, then get on my merry way until they were running to the door. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> can I get your phone number? Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out why somebody would think that it was a problem that I found them attractive and was willing to share my bed and my body with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why would that be a problem? Mm-hmm. Right. Why would that affect your other parts of your life, like how smart you are, or how well you're doing in school, or your job, or whatever? You know, why would people take you less seriously? Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, you weren't supposed to be smart and sexy both. That was clearly against the rules. <laughs> it was a kind of a strange journey, and I did learn to empower myself, and I learned to be... I guess, much stronger and more independent. At that time, I still thought I was going to eventually settle down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when at the m- moment when I hit 1969 and that acid trip, I had left a, a relationship where um, my partner had come down with adult onset schizophrenia and was paranoid and violent, and I had to leave. Mm-hmm. And I left when I was six months pregnant. Wow. Wow. That sounds very difficult. Yeah, everything in my life started from fighting my way out of the house when I was six months pregnant with $10 in my pocket and the clothes on my back. Oh, my God. And now I own a house in Marin, huh? (laughs) (laughs) You made it. (laughs) How far we've come. (laughs) And my daughter is 52, and we are are very close and and in in good shape, you know? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. But so that was kind of where it all started. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about adult onset schizophrenia. It's real. And so, you know, suddenly people out of a clear blue sky go crazy when they're 25, 30, you know, usually under 30, but when they're young adults and mental illness is what it is and it is not necessarily manageable. All all people Mm -hmm. with schizophrenia are not violent. Most of them aren't. Most of them are quite shy, actually. But some are. And when somebody is crazy and violent, well, you're in a very dangerous situation and you just have to leave. That's it. Yeah. Uh, no other way. So I had a baby and I had no husband. Mm-hmm. I had no male partner, no nesting partner. And that was like, oh. And then I got in this notion of rewriting my whole life because of feminism. And it seemed like just the right place to be for that. Yeah. It was wonderful. It was a great journey from there on in. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were trials and tribulations and things that went wrong, relationships that ended badly and so on and so forth. But my life just kept growing and I kept learning and I learned more and more and I got degrees and I got licensed and, you know, all these kinds of things became possible as I moved along and found my co-author and wrote books. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like as far as polyamory, you were kind of going through a lot of counterculture, like alternative sexualities, alternative ways of living as a woman in society in the 60s and 70s. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how polyamory came up as a big part of your life. And then The Ethical Slut, which you wrote, is the pinnacle of polyamory books. So how did you get on that path? I suppose they were hardships. But one of the things I figured out shortly after my wonderful acid trip, this was kind of the doing more zazen kind of form of it in terms of what do you do before 
enlightenment, you mm-hmm. chop wood, carry water. And what do you do after enlightenment? You chop wood, carry water. But it seemed like <laughs> there was a lot of work to do if I was going to make myself into the kind of woman I could envision. Okay. And uh, free myself to be the kind of woman that I felt was my essential truth. And having an open sexuality did feel like my essential truth. It felt like a big piece of that, that that was important. There were people who didn't like it, but I, I developed a very firm conviction, which I recommend to everybody, that anybody who doesn't want to play the same game I want to play doesn't belong in my bed. They can go be in somebody else's bed who wants to play the game they want to play. Mm-hmm. That's fine. <laughs> That's just fine. And so, you know, if somebody, I, I developed the notion of thinking about things that fit. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's, uh, if if I, I shared an attraction with someone and we were contemplating getting together and then something got in the way, I was like, okay. So that one wasn't a fit. Mm-hmm. As we got to know each other better, it didn't seem like a good idea. Okay, fine. And I found plenty of fit. And yeah. There were a lot of us after the summer of love, you see. There were a lot of post-summer of love babies, as you might imagine. <laughs> Not because of accidents, but because we were here. Hey, this isn't some lifestyle that we're just doing because we're young. This is important stuff we're doing about the way we want to live our lives. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of, we wound up with a lot of single mothers who hadn't even necessarily been intentional mm-hmm. single mothers, which was like me. And we were all like, we had these babies and we weren't settled somewhere. I thought I was going to be a pioneer hippie and do kind of like what you're doing in, the, in your five acres. <laughs> and that wasn't what I was doing. What I was doing was very urban. Right. Mm. And it was lovely. And we had a, a wonderful time of it with communal living and raising children communally. And I co-parented like 13 children. Wow. One of them is now my lawyer. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so they all turned out okay, right? They all turned out successful and wonderful. That's amazing. When I when I read the ethical slut in 2015 somewhere around there it was it was a one of the most formative texts on sexuality I think I've ever <laughs> read but it was also at a time where like the feminist movement was really starting to reclaim the word and the idea slut and I guess looking back I'm like really struck by you titling it ethical slut and reclaiming it really before it was popular to you know reclaim what was that like pioneering a lot of this movement a lot of poly lifestyle and well, it was. It came out of a very strange place. People would ask us, "What are you writing now?" Because we wrote the bottoming book and the topping book first. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then there is a story that goes with this. We were teaching. We had been invited to teach about BDSM at a Mensa gathering mm-hmm. outside of Monterey, and mm-hmm. we were there. And we they gave us little cottages, so we had both come with our partners. Janet had a male partner. I had a female partner, but we'd come with our partners to enjoy the weekend in the in the pretty pretty place. And they were there. We introduced them. They had a little to say and stuff. And then Janet and I were role modeling a a flirtation and a negotiating consent and role kind of thing on the stage. And after we'd been talking all about SM, how to do all these things and how to make them safe and how do people do this and what's a safe word Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we overheard this woman saying, oh, my God, did you see that? She was flirting with that woman and they said they were lovers and her husband was right there. Wow. Gosh, golly, how could we? After all of that, after all of you see it. <laughs> we looked at each other and said, there's a book we need right. to write. And, uh, okay, this is the next book. Here we go. Yeah. And so we wrote Slut. And in the middle of it, people would say, what are you writing now? And I developed this sort of fictional title, calling it The Ethical Slut. And every, all of our friends knew what that meant. It's kind of an obvious joke of an oxymoron that has a rather deep meaning. And um, when you look at it seriously, and when it came time Mm -hmm. to actually find a title for the book, 
we discussed it endlessly because we were self-published the first time Janet had Greenery Press at the time. And so we, we were publishing our own, our own work mm-hmm. and we had been calling it The Ethical Slut for a long time. And it was the only good title we came up with. It just, you know, <laughs> polyamory in the 21st century just didn't sound like us. Eh, yeah, right. boring. <laughs> boring indeed. And so we, uh, we called it The Ethical Slut. And I remember one guy I talked to said, you can't call it that. And I said, can too. Yeah. Like I always say when people tell me I can't do things. <laughs> he said, well, they're just not going to take that slut. You know, it's a terrible thing. I said, well, you have a lot of lovers. What do you call yourself? he said, I'm a stud. Uh, and I said, what's the difference? And he couldn't find an answer to that. And so I figured we were on the right path. The difference is there's no social stigma around it. Yeah, the difference is you're a woman. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so calling it the ethical slot in terms of reclaiming the language, and we do speak about reclaiming the language and about mm-hmm. language at the very beginning of the mm-hmm. book, turned out to be very much the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. In some places, in Ireland and in, and in London, it used to be a dare to go read it on the subway. <laughs> See, now it's a way to pick people up because you can read it and be like, "Huh, look, <laughs> anyone, anyone, anyone else? <laughs> That's great. That's great. It's a great blessing in my life because I had figured out that I was a slut. I mean, I really was using the word. Gay men use the word all the time, by the way. You know, mm. what did you do in the baths last night? Oh, you slut. You know, it's a compliment, <laughs> you know. So that was where I got it from. Mm-hmm. I love reclaiming language. I really love it. Mm. For a while, they insisted on retitled my friend T. Corinne's The Cunt Coloring Book. Have you seen it? <laughs> uh-uh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, this was another sex positive adventure. It's an amazing book. And for a while, they ins- the publishers insisted on calling it Labia Flowers instead of the Cunt Coloring Book, which really didn't work. It sold beautifully as the Cunt Coloring Book. And yeah, 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 yeah. That alliteration. I'd be shocked if it wasn't still in print. So T wanted to create a, a sort of aesthetic of cunt. We had all these phallic art symbols around. And, and where yeah. would we get some aesthetic of cunt? Yeah. And so we met every Tuesday evening in her house and we had a sort of cunt awareness time we took pictures of each other we looked at slides of each other we got to we could recognize each other by our cunts <laughs> there were 38 women involved wow. in this project and we spent one evening a week for the time the book was being developed for maybe about a year and tea's sketching like crazy and we're all taking photographs and it was just wonderful god damn it why is your life so cool <laughs> Well, because I only tell you the cool parts. I don't tell you the long, boring parts in between, you know. <laughs> they do exist, you know. I don't believe you. I'm 77 years old and I have arthritis, but that's not interesting, you know. <laughs> so when you were writing The Ethical Slot, how did you figure out what to include? For instance, there's a whole chapter on jealousy that has worksheets and questions for the reader. Did you develop that from your own experiences or did you gather outside sources? Well, we were we were sluts. So we actually, <laughs> you say from our own experience, but we shared with a lot of people's experiences mm-hmm. and people with stuff in common, especially we had young children, both of us. And we were in the groups of people who had children mm-hmm. and we were members of these huge extended families. Yeah. Mm. So we had a lot of accumulated experience. Yeah. And we taught a lot at conferences and stuff, mostly BDSM stuff, because that's where we had started writing. But 
we would then, every time we wrote a new book, we would talk about that mm-hmm. and do a workshop on it at the conferences that we taught at. Yeah. And so we wound up with groups of strangers talking to them who often had really interesting ideas. And so there was quite a bit of public involved. I mean, it wasn't the two of us sitting around <laughs> in splendid isolation doing this. We were in the middle of this with a whole lot of people, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't just one other person. You know, it was my lovers, my ex-lovers, their lovers, their ex-lovers, all their ex-lovers, new lovers. And, you know, it goes on like that. And you wind up with this Mm -hmm. pretty big body of people. Janet has a little bit more presence in straight world and I have more of a presence in queer world. So between us, we represented all the sexually defined worlds. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Writing that book has been a huge blessing in my life. Yeah. And not because of the success of it, because I guess it was the big answer to the people who thought I was crazy when I was young (laughs) and going on the path that I was going on around sexuality. And so it was like, okay, now if you want to understand what I was doing, here's the book that will show you how it works. Here's the book. Yeah. And why don't you just go read that and don't ask me, okay? Yeah. Yeah. The seriousness of it is that it was a real blessing to write something very serious about something that at the time was much more controversial than it is now. Yeah. Bit, about 25 years ago now. And so that's about a generation. Yeah. I mean, your book's probably been a big part of it being less controversial now. Yeah. You definitely <laughs> pushed it into, into more ac- acceptable territory for sure. I mean, I know we've been literally talking about your your body of work on polyamory in your entire life, you know, most of your life you've been polyamorous, but I guess if someone were to come up to you, like a, a new person who's interested in trying out polyamory or, or they think they're polyamorous and they said, Dossie, how do I get into this? How do I do this? How do I start being poly? What would you tell them? You probably would go tell them to read the ethical slut, but. <laughs> I'm a therapist. They, people come into my office asking me these questions all the time. Yeah. They consult with me. They come to me because they want to know this. And, uh, mm-hmm. So I actually have a lot of experience with it, for which I am very grateful. And one of the things that changed between the first and second edition was a lot of people that I would not have met in my normal life, Mm. a lot of people who were a lot straighter than me, which is a pretty low bar, you know, so I'm there getting on the same side with them. I'm not just going to tell them to, you know, leave the entire society that you know that your whole life is based on, including your children's college fund. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, no, 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 this is not it. I've got to think of answers that fit with these people's, with, with mm-hmm. these people and where they are. And so that really broadened my horizons a lot. And I got to see what worked for a lot of people in very intimate ways that what worked for a lot of people who are very different from me. So the difference between the second and first edition is that there's now a third edition, uh, is that I put a lot of the homework exercises I developed for those people in the book. Nice. So if you look through at the exercises that are in the book, you'll see a lot of that. How? What are some of the things you do to unlearn jealousy? What are some of the things you can do to open up your sexuality? What are the, some things you can do to figure out how you want to flirt and how you want to present yourself in the world? So there's, there's a lot of very experiential material in there. And that was enlightening to me. My body of information has always been this huge experience. That was what San Francisco's sex information gave me to start with. It was a place where we all talked about sexuality all the time, and that was fine and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so we had a community of friends, and it was the place where I learned that you can share sex with your friends (laughs) and make stable long-term things out of that. That our friends with benefits never sounded cold or difficult to me. That sounded like, yes, right on. Yep. That's what I like (laughs) having too. But it's harder to... (laughs) I don't know. I feel like 
it's good to have people that are already kind of thinking that way. I feel like I'm always trying to talk people <laughs> into it. Well, this has become this has become a big difference. So the other thing I wind up telling people who are serious about this is that you have to get involved in the communities. Yeah. Mm. You need to go to the places the other poly people are. If that's poly speed dating, if that's support groups mm -hmm. that somebody's running, if that's play parties, if you're up for that kind of thing. It's interesting that like one of our biggest play party environments now, Mission Control, which has not been doing well, quarantine year has been very difficult for our play spaces. Yeah. Yeah. But they have been running classes along with doing play parties forever. And that's been very mm -hmm. common in the community that play parties, which are what you think they are. They're orgies. If you have never heard about this, people get together <laughs> to play with each other. But in the daytime, they also run classes and have speakers mm. and basically help people find the way. So you go, you find the places where people are talking, you find the places where people are teaching, and you go meet other people. It's a hard thing because you can no longer just sort of wander into a club and show what mm -hmm. a great dancer you are and pick up new partners and expect this to work. Hmm. because we call the relationship escalator, but anyway, <laughs> right, you might even think of it as a roller coaster on a downhill slide, but um, <laughs> there is a belief out there that any relationship that has any depth whatsoever to it or that works sexually or that is valuable in any way, shape, or form is supposed to lead to coupling. Mm -hmm. And I see polyamory as an opportunity to share parts of your life with people that you would never dream of sharing a checking account with. Mm-hmm much less a mortgage, yeah. that you are not making that kind of commitment. So you get to explore for the sake of what that relationship is yeah, mm -hmm. and not try to fit it into something that it isn't good at. Yeah. Yeah. That notion is very freeing. You know, you don't feel like you're tied to societal expectations, right? Just let it be whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm, that's amazing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It kind of reminds me of what you were saying earlier Dossie, about how it depends on how other people fit into what you want. And I, I think that's a really empowering way to live your life where it's like, well, this is me and I, I know exactly what I want and who I am. And these people can be here if it works or I'll move on if it doesn't. I, I know I personally struggle with that. I feel like I'm always like, nope, I'm going to bend every which way to make this person fit in my life because I just... <laughs> can't let go of, of things or people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I used to think that it was my job and I wasn't mm. succeeding yeah. if I didn't quote, get them. Yeah. And now I just think it's sort of natural. And even if I do have sex with somebody and it turns out that that's not a person I want to have even a friendly kind of relationship with, mm. that we don't fit together very well, then okay. Mm -hmm. Nothing bad has happened. You know, you, you make decisions about what you want in your life based on a lot of different kinds of information. It's not just whether or not they are good in bed. Yeah. How do you set some of those boundaries? Like for me, I, I don't practice hierarchical polyamory because I've been, been at the bottom of the hierarchy many times and it is not always fun. It's almost never fun. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I ask partners questions about how they practice poly and if they have primary partners and secondary partners, just to sort of get a feel for like, you know, what is this dynamic I'm entering into? But what, what do you advise, you know, other people to do when they're in these situations? You really need to find your no if you're going to go out and being polyamorous, mm. men as well as women. You need to be able to say, I don't think this is a fit for me. Uh, what you're going to find in somebody that you get, you know, profoundly, intimately hooked into 
is usually a big mixed bag and often an opportunity to struggle with some inner conflict that you feel powerless about Mm. or that you hope that Prince or Princess Charming is supposed to provide the answer to somehow by some magic. (laughs) But a lot of times people say that we're just repeating the same things that our parents did and so on. You know, uh, a lot of times I think that what hooks us very profoundly into some relationships is that we have an opportunity to struggle with some way in which we wish that we could have fixed our parents Mm. or some other such childhood dilemma. That can wind up being a great relationship and it can wind up being the end of a relationship. Yeah. Because one of the answers when you struggle with something like that is that you're now a grown up, you're not a child with parents and you get to say no, Yeah, for instance. And so I don't think that people are attracted if, you know, if your parents were alcoholic and you get attract, find yourself attracted to alcoholics. I don't think people are just, mm-hmm. you know, robots going around the same circle. I think they're struggling to find a better answer. Yeah. And if you figure out then that your notion with your partner is that you should be the nice person who brings them to AA and brings them to a joyous sobriety, I hope that works. Yeah. I really do because we need that in our world. We need roads to a better future for people who get stuck in a, in a negative pattern in their lives, but it may not. Yeah. And so maybe the big win for you is saying, okay, no, I don't want to be involved with this anymore. I've already lived with alcoholics and I can leave. But that's those struggles. Those are difficult. Mm-hmm. But they are also part of how we learn and grow when we struggle with the hard stuff. Yeah. So... You're obviously like a very sex positive (laughs) person. I'm curious about your thoughts on current sex education. Like kids and teenagers are learning about sex, hopefully in a slightly more sex positive way than Jen and I did and hopefully in a much more sex positive way than you did. Yeah. But how do you think that maybe the principles of polyamory, sex positivity, all of that could be applied to sex education today? Well, I think the idea is to let our kids know that they have freedom of choice. I mean, I can't think of anything more appalling than Mm -hmm. sending them to some camp that's dedicated to correcting their homosexuality, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. So to say, yeah, whoever you are as a sexual person, you get to discover that. This is what sexual freedom really is in obviously consensual ways, in obviously as grown-up ways as you can manage, considering that we somehow have this idea that telling teenagers that they're not old enough to have sex (laughs) means that they won't have sex because that's sort of unlikely. Right. (laughs) Official, if you want to, there's a marvelous book called Harmful to Minors by Judith Levine, which is about the disfunding and destruction of the sex education in the schools that we built up in the 70s. Yeah. I was working on teaching sex ed in schools um, back in the 70s, and that got attacked by the fundies. Right. Mm -hmm. That was post-AIDS, right? From what I've read, a lot of fundamentalists use that to push their message of... of, uh, purity culture and whatnot. Yeah. I don't know why, you know, why they seem to think that God put sex on the world to tempt us into into hell, but um, that doesn't make any sense at all. If you believe in intelligent design, that's not very intelligent design, <laughs> frankly. There you jolly well are. I, I, I just have to quote my favorite quote. Sister Wendy Beckett was an art critic, an amazing art critic, and she was a Roman Catholic nun in England. And she had written these amazing articles about art that she had only seen pictures of. Wow. The BBC just sort of discovered her, these brilliant articles that she wrote, a brilliant woman. And they 
trotted her around Europe to visit the works of mm. art that she'd written about and lecture in front of them. It became a very well-known series and Sister Wendy's art history of art book became a bestseller and things like that. Wow. She had one of those wonderful Bill Moyer interviews where in-depth interviews of her work. And he asked her at one point, you being a nun and all, and there she is, she's this little low lady kind of in a habit, you know, <laughs> in, in the nun habit with snaggle teeth and big Coke bottle glasses, and British accent. And, and she's just dear. And he says, you know, you being a nun and all, and you write about, mod, how do you feel about all the, the sexuality that's in modern art that you write about? And she says, oh, I don't think God would have given us such wonderful toys and then told us not to play with them. Damn, <laughs> mic drop. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now there is a sex positive theology yeah. for you. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> now, the Pope actually silenced her for a while, I fear, but she had a very sex-positive point of view. And she also said at some point when discussing Caravaggio and all those nudes in the Sistine Chapel, you know, she said, some people seem to believe that when God created our bodies, he made a mistake when he made certain parts, and we should all be very embarrassed about God's mistake and cover up those parts. <laughs> she said, that's not faith. Faith is that God made us and we're good. Hmm. Yeah. That's faith. Now, I don't believe in God in the same way Sister Wendy does by any means, but I think that her theology of sex positivism in, that fits into that kind of metaphysic is really perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to see, I would love to see kids have knowledge about sexualities, plural, mm -hmm. and have a freedom of choice about what they chose and have a maybe look mm -hmm. at what do we value. Yeah. And how do we value pleasure in our lives? Mm -hmm. I mean, it starts all the way back to there. Yeah. I, I once taught, and this is early, early in my career. This would have been back in the 70s. I was invited to speak to a group of freshmen at a college, young kids, young guys, you know, 18, yeah. 19 years old. And they were just had just been talking about the Spartan and Athenian ethos, right? And they were doing a class in ethics, right? And I, so I started out and I said, you know, well, in Stoicism or mm -hmm. in the Athenian ethos, what how did they value pleasure? And I know perfectly well that no one had said a word about how they valued pleasure up to that point. And there was this dead silence, obviously. I said, well, okay, this is interesting. We're in a culture that doesn't value pleasure either. What does this say to you? And that's where we started the discussion. Because one of the mistakes people make is to say that sex has to be good for something. It's pair <laughs> bonding. It's the, the root of the family. Mm -hmm. It keeps the family together. That's what, why you have sex. That's why we like sex. Well, that's mm -hmm. not really true. Uh, actually, long-term families, the sex gets to be less and less in most of them. And so that's not true either. If you don't get any sort of outside stimulus, sex lives tend to get kind of perfunctory mm. and less pleasurable, less rewarding. And the fact that pleasure is important. Back then, I wrote an honors thesis for my bachelor's degree titled, Sex is Nice and Pleasure is Good for You. <laughs> Which sounds very simple, but that really is what I believe. I'm currently writing a book on consent, mm -hmm. and I'm writing the introductory chapters and a chapter about the history and the values. That what are sex-positive values? What's a sex-positive community mm -hmm. look like, and what are our values? And obviously, the valuing of consent. I define consent as an active collaboration for the pleasure and well-being of all people involved, including some people who might not be in the room right then. Mm. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just really important that we respect each other's yeah. feelings, that we respect that people may be struggling with jealousy. That doesn't mean we should let jealousy win. 
I think we give jealousy too much power sometimes, yeah. um, <laughs> but that we do often have to struggle with it and learn a new way to be with mm. jealousy, a new way to live with this. So I, I think that we're looking at a pleasure positive world. We have to look at our philosophy yeah. about work ethics and stuff like that. That work is good. Yeah, I do like to work and I throw myself. I've done a whole, whole lot of work <laughs> in sex positivism. It's not like it's all uh, a party. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm working on my sixth book right now. You know That's exciting, though. Can you tell us more about what you're working on right now in your current projects? Yes. Uh, sure. A little while ago, a few years back, about 2017, I think, and Me Too was making its entrance into the world yeah. and opening up a lot of discourse about just how much sexual assault and non- non-consensual sex was going on in the world and how often and how that had become kind of such a, a part of our culture that there really was a rape culture. And I know this to be true. You don't live Mm. in sex positive land the way I do without running into this kind of thing over and over and over and over and over again, especially because women are considered to be commodities. So a sex positive woman on the loose, you know, is seen as an opportunity (laughs) by uh, some people who sort of seem to think that they, who they should be as a fox in the chicken coop. So there's a lot of stuff about consent was coming in the open that I really had wished had come into the open before that I'd wanted to see this public discourse happening. There's a lot of things happening that are problematic, but we are struggling to bring something into consciousness here, which is the ways in which our culture supports sexual assault. Mm. And it's really important to learn that, to do this, this work. So I was called upon to do a um, talk on consent at a conference on erotic hypnosis. Yeah, And erotic hypnosis is exactly what you think it might be. It's saying, what are the erotic potential? What's the erotic potential of trance states and how do we explore them? Yeah, And of course, if you're working with erotic hypnosis, often that has the power of bringing kind of stories, our our own personal mythologies Mm. and bringing them up and and eroticizing them and maybe giving them a shot of the life force in the process, right? And maybe bringing them into consciousness safe way and healing things. But this requires a very exquisite attention to consent because now you're playing really, you know, all of your scenes are deep psychological scenes, that kind of thing. So a lot of attention to what's, what people are agreeing to, always the backup plan, always a plan of, of if this goes to a place that's too unpleasant to go to, then how do we stop? We safe word out and then what do we do next? Mm-hmm. A safe word is always a to my mind, an occasion for mutual support because the person who was safe worded upon, as it were, uh, is also almost dying of shame because they did something that didn't work. And, and, you know, and that's, as I said, the learning process is very forbidden. That's terrible shame. You try something and it doesn't work. And so instead of that, we go to mutual support. So I, I envisioned a, a series of classes that we would run about sex that's about looking at those roots and about looking at where does, what is it about how we grow up in this culture and the sex education that we do have, the terrible sex education that most of us have, and how we abandoned our young people to finding out sex with no adult guidance, mind you, which is not a good way to prevent pedophilia. And at the same time, what we do is we basically commit our young people into learning about sex in a jungle where there are no adults who are willing to give them counseling or listen to them or help them find ways to be safe while they are finding themselves in sexuality. So this is very important. And so I a vision of these classes of what I wanted to teach. And then there was this incredible sequence of events where people just said yes. I went to Carol Queen running the Center for Sex and Culture. I said, is there any way that we could... We need a space to teach these classes. And so I'll go to the board. We're going to give you the space for free. And I put out the word. I wanted a teaching team. I got a teaching team. (laughs) Um, 
I'm now four years later in a, retiring to a sort of consultant position because the teaching team is ready to strike out on their own and I'm getting quite old mm-hmm. and I need to make sure that this, these classes can continue without me. Yeah. So we have six classes that we present twice, so really 12 classes. One track is called about surviving and one track is called about transgressing. Obviously, it works better to do this kind of deep emotional education without having survivors and transgressors in the same room. Yeah. It's, that wasn't going to work. And the classes are kind of obvious. The first one is about coercion and collisions. And the second one is roles we play and the stereotyped roles, especially how men and women are supposed to be in sexuality. Mm-hmm. And communication and negotiation, making it right after uh, a boundary crossing has happened. The ways of doing that, that's very important. Yeah. And finally, recovery and resilience. How do we make it right? How do I make anything right with myself that has happened? Yeah. That sounds so critical. I think a lot of times our society makes it seem like, no, you you fucked up. That's it. You can't come back from that. And I think being able to learn how to do that sounds critical. <laughs> yeah. It's not the only answer. I'm hoping that many other other answers are there, transformative justice, reformative justice, and lots of other really good programs that you can access for nice. people. Um, we're not the only ones, but I want there to be a lot because... Some parts of our society seem to think that the only two answers are either you don't listen to that silly victim or you throw that bum off the edge of the planet. Mm -hmm. And neither of those things are actually dealing with the problems. Yeah. Not listening obviously doesn't work. And we can't just simply exile everybody who has ever crossed a boundary. We have to have some roads to redemption. Mm -hmm. That's important. And if people want to continue acting in a predatory manner, well, that's their decision. And then we have to say, well, I'm sorry, but we don't allow allow foxes in the hen house here. Yeah, mm-hmm. super important. So I'm very happy. I'm excited about it. So now we're writing the book. The book is really an excuse for publishing the syllabus so that other people can create similar classes for their populations, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, right now we're also being called upon to help a group of people from Lighthouse for the Blind create a, a series of classes specifically for blind people. Oh, wow. Wow about consent and sexuality. So we're very proud that good things are happening. Yeah. Super cool. You know, I talk in a very offhand way. I love humor. I love being silly. (laughs) And in fact, I do a lot of really serious work. (laughs) I think that's a good combo though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a really good place for us to wrap up. Dossie, thank you so much for talking to us. Where can people like find your work and more about you? Okay, my website is simple, www.dossieeaston.com, D-O-S-S-I-E-E-A-S-T-O-N. Perfect. That's my website. Navigating Consent has its own website. It's called www.navigating-consent.com. Perfect. Yeah. And then, of course, you can buy Dossie's books, The Ethical Slut, the new book on topping, the new book on bottoming, at pretty much any online real ta- retailer or bookstore. Mm-hmm. Please purchase them. <laughs> They're amazing, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And some, someone you love is Kinky and um, Radical Ecstasy, subtitled SM Journeys to Transcendence. I'm going uh, to buy one of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, we hope that you enjoyed that episode. Like Kaylee said at the beginning, it was packed full of great information. We hope you got to <laughs> process it all. We're still processing it even weeks later after talking to her. So, yeah. Anyway, this is our last episode for the month of May. We're not going to be doing one next week. We're taking a little break and we will be right back at it in June for a bunch of pride episodes. We cannot skip out on June. So uh, watch (laughs) out for that. 
And, you know, we may not be putting an episode out next week, but we will be putting out a blog post that is about how polyamory is a significantly great tool for unlearning some of the lessons of purity culture. So keep an eye out on our blog. You can find that at sexedpodcast.com. And you can also find it if you're subscribed to our newsletter, which is on Substack under Sex Ed Podcast. So please check that out. Yes. And of course, you can always find us online at sexedpodcast.com or on Instagram at sexedpodcast or email us if you feel like it at at (laughs) sexedpod at gmail.com. And as always, thank you to Kent for mastering our sound. Thank you. Any other thoughts? (laughs) I, my thoughts are all are done. They're done. There's no more. No more thoughts. thoughts. Empty head. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Love you. Her twat swatting baby. Twat swatting. <laughs> That's so much. That's the, the female equivalent of cock blocking. <laughs> oh, there's a thought. I like that one. Oh, what's her name? A comedian. Wonderful comedian. Dyke community. And she calls it... If you're if you're doing the equivalent female equivalent of cock blocking would be beaver dams. Oh, I like beaver dams. Yeah, but I like twat blocking. That sounds good. That that, that rhyme to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.